everybody. Welcome to Profoundly Pointless. My name is Nick Vinzant. Coming up in this episode, ancient shipwrecks and stuff you should do, but just don't. There's always a sense of excitement when you first go in, just because you don't know what you're going to see. It's a thrill every time you dive into the water. I mean, you could find an ancient shipwreck, you could find a sunken city, you could find bombs, but an absolutely phenomenal project in that way you've discovered 58 shipwrecks in this little tiny archipelago that was largely forgotten to history. These are ships that were in their prime, carrying full consignments of cargo that crashed and sank. And so they're like time capsules. They would be armed to their teeth and they would try and take over the ship and then take the most valuable things that they can. And then they would uh, probably sink the ship and, and kill everybody on board. I want to thank you guys so much for joining us. If you get a chance, like, download, subscribe, share. We really appreciate it. It really helps us out. So ancient shipwrecks, sunken cities, treasure, pirates, our first guest explores and studies all of those, and this is just a fascinating conversation. This is marine archaeologist Peter Campbell. So when you're going into the water exploring one of these shipwrecks or a sunken city, what is that feeling like when you go into the water? There's always a sense of excitement when you first go in, just because you don't know what you're going to see. I mean, the world is... The, or sorry, the, the ocean is the world's largest haystack, and uh, we're looking for needles down there. So, I mean, a lot of times we don't find anything, but um, you kind of get that that adrenaline boost every time you find something that you forget all of those those ones that were kind of pointless searches. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it's a thrill every time you dive into the water because you just don't know what you're going to find. I mean, you could find an ancient shipwreck. You could find a sunken city. You could find bombs, you know, unexploded ordnance. You could find, you know, sharks and eels. So it's always exciting because it's just completely unknown. Now, when you go in, like, are you going in looking for something specific? Like, I want to find this thing from the 5th century. Or are you just kind of, hey, there's a shipwreck here. Let's go check it out. Yeah, so it's a mix. It depends on the project. Um, so I do mostly community-based research. So I go in and work with local communities, um, usually in areas where there's been no search or survey before. And uh, and so the first step is you know speaking to the community about what might be in the area. And so we generally have a, a, a sense of what's in the area, and we work with fishermen and sponge divers and, and free divers and that sort of thing. And they say, oh, I remember seeing some ceramics over there, or oh, I saw some strange straight lines in the water over there. And so we go and we, we check those first, and um, generally those have about a 50% rate of you know being something archaeological, something important. Um, and then the other half of the time, you know, it's, it might just be a few ceramics, but not an actual archaeological site. Uh, and then the rest of the time, we try and fill in the rest of the map. And that's just blind survey. It's filling in gaps on the map where there might be things. So uh, you generally work from what's known to what's unknown. You could have five dives in a row where you find nothing. And then on the six dives, you just find something absolutely incredible. Looking at your research in kind of a broad sense, what's the overall goal? Like, what are you trying to do? So as a maritime archaeologist, I'm trying to understand humans' past engagement with water. So, you know, there's a lot of maritime archaeologists who don't dive, who are studying things like springs and rivers and uh, harbors, uh, harbor infrastructure, that sort of thing, or ship burials, you know, like Viking Vikings that were buried with their ships. Um but then those of us who do dive are trying to understand, I mean, also harbors and stuff like that, but uh, we're going underwater and trying to find evidence of, you know, watercraft, how people interacted by sea or by lakes or by rivers. And we're trying to piece together human interaction uh, with water. When did we kind of become good at it, would you say? We became good at kind of venturing out into the ocean. I don't think that we've really found the answer to that question yet, just because a lot of it is obscured by by time, by vast tracts of time. Um, 
you know, there's a lot of really interesting proxy data suggesting very, very early seafaring, far back in human history. Um, you know, so you have the peopling of, of Australia around 70,000 years ago. You have the peopling of Cyprus around 20,000 years ago. And we just don't have any evidence yet, direct evidence of those ships or those, those vessels, those log boats or whatever they may be that got people traveling. But we know that they made it. And so, you know, probably humans were venturing out on water very, very early uh, in our history. Why do you think we've always done it? You know, water is essential to life, and and obviously salt water we don't consume, but there's an enormous amount of resources that can be harvested there. And it really is easier to travel across a body of water if you have, you know, kind of basic skills um, of working and and living on water. It's easier to cross a body of water than it is to go up over a mountain and that sort of thing. So, I mean, you could have mobile bands of hunter-gatherers who are living on the coastal margin gathering shellfish and fish and, and other marine resources. And they could be highly mobile by just working along the coastline. And that affords protection. It affords a lot of resources. If resources start to decline in one area, you can very quickly move to a new area. So I think that the coastal margin hasn't really been explored enough um, in terms of, uh, of its importance to human uh, development and history. And uh, it's just now within the last 10, 15 years that there's been a realization that the most likely route for the peopling of uh, the Americas likely came in around 16,000 years ago uh, from Beringia, the Bering, the Bering Land Bridge, from Asia into Beringia, and then from there down the coast of the Pacific, um, probably quite quickly using various watercraft, rather than what has been the traditional kind of codified version of there being an ice-free corridor. I think more and more people are realizing that humans um, were using watercraft very early on. So we weren't necessarily, so we didn't really get to the United States, so to speak, by just walking across a land bridge. We actually kind of used boats to get over here. It just makes too much sense for the people who are in Beringia to have boats, considering we know that other people in other parts of the world were already using boats, traveling vast distances already by that point of time. Is is maritime archaeology the most dangerous form of archaeology? Um, if you look at it in terms of micromorts, if it was an actual profession measured by micromorts, which is deaths per thousand – it is. It would be the deadliest job in the world. So you know, there's this balance between um, there's a lot of potential for danger, and people do get hurt, and and sometimes people die. Uh, with you know this, the reality of you know scientists are very good at safely conducting this sort of research, um, but things do occasionally happen. H- have you lost friends or colleagues? <sighs> Um, I have had colleagues that have passed away while in the field, um, not from diving incidents, um, but from other incidents of just being, you know, in remote locations and things happening. And um, there, I do have colleagues who have have had diving accidents, you know, having getting the bends, which is you know the divers' disease. Um, from nitrogen in their blood and that sort of thing. And so, so diving accidents do happen. Fortunately, um, none of those have related in fatalities. When you go to explore a site, are you generally fairly close to the coast or are you out in the middle of the ocean? So it depends on the project. Um, so most of the, you know, the, the projects where we're diving, obviously we're quite close to the coastline. Uh, for a number of reasons. Um, obviously, the diver depth limits, you know, the deepest that um, my projects dive to are around 60 meters, uh, which is still quite deep. But, you know, you're still within, you're quite close to the coastline when you're at 60 meters. But we also have projects that are deep water projects, um, which are which are over 60 meters uh, and can be, you know, down to 100 or more. Um, of mine. Some people are working, you know, several miles underwater. And that really is a growth area in maritime archaeology. There's a lot more use of robots. So um, remotely operated vehicles, ROVs, and autonomous underwater vehicles, AUVs, have really increased in the last, I'd say, five to ten years. Um, They've become 
very, very good, uh, mostly due to their development by the oil and gas industry for offshore work. And um, they've been adopted by various maritime archaeologists um, who are yeah, using them with, with great skill and, and finding quite a lot of things down there. Correct me if I'm wrong here, but you just came back from a dive, right? Um, yeah. So we had a project recently in Forni in Greece. Um, we had two weeks of field work out there. And so this was the fifth year that we've been working out there. Um, so relatively new discovery, but an absolutely phenomenal project in that we've discovered 58 shipwrecks in this little tiny archipelago that was largely forgotten to history. And um, it's the largest concentration of ships lost underway in the Mediterranean. And so what I mean by that is these are ships that were in their prime carrying full consignments of cargo that crashed and sank. And so they're like time capsules, 58 of them. And there's probably many more because we haven't finished the survey yet. We're still working. Why are they all crashing there? It's something that we've slowly pieced together since the start of the project. As we started finding more and more shipwrecks, we thought this is very odd because the other islands in the area, you know, the other islands in the Aegean generally have two to three shipwrecks, you know, if that. So it's very unusual. You know, we had one day in the first season where we found six wrecks in that in one day where every single dive team found a wreck on their dive. So, I mean, it was, we knew that day that something very strange was happening. And, um, and so what we figured out is that with modern ships that have propellers, you can sail up and down the central Aegean trough, which is this wide channel that has no islands or anything. And you can just freely go up and down it. And it's the most direct route through the Aegean. But if you're a sailing ship, then you're beholden to the winds and the currents and the locations, the islands and that sort of thing. You have to sail at certain angles to the wind. And the Forney Archipelago is located at a kind of crossroads where if you're going north-south, you have to pass by it. Or if you're going east-west, there's two crossing routes, east-west and the Aegean. And, and this is the primary crossing route. So it's essentially... The islands aren't significant in terms of they didn't have any famous cities. They didn't have any great wealth or anything like that. But they were incredibly important, probably the second most important uh, navigational point within the Aegean. So there's a huge volume of ships passing by the archipelago in every time period until the advent of the propeller and modern propulsion systems. And even today when we see really bad storms, all of the little bays of the archipelago fill up with sailing ships. So it's still a place where ships go. Um, so why are there so many ships there? It's a function of the volume of trade in every time period. Um, there's not really many ships that sank because of kind of ship, what we'd call ship traps, like a hidden reef that they can't see and they sail into. We only have probably two ships that sank that way from from crashing into something they couldn't see. The rest of them were probably there anchored, trying to find shelter, uh, that sort of thing, and they had like a galley fire that burned the ship and it sank, or um, the wind changed from the north to the south, and the southern wind is very strong. That's usually where the gales come from in the Aegean, and pushed them into the rocks and they sank. How do you kind of go about exploring that? Like, will you go in detail into every single ship? Or do you just kind of make a quick pass through and see, all right, no, this one doesn't have something, move on to the next? Well, for the first four years, we were finding ships, uh, you know, because with an archaeological permit, you're not allowed to work outside of the permit period. And, and our permits were generally two or three weeks. And so we were actually finding more than one ship per day. Uh, for the first few years. So some of these ships, we've only dove on once. And, and you know, we, we've gotten photos and that sort of thing and marked the location, but we were still searching for more. And this past season was more of trying to take stock of what needs to be done, of documenting them um, further and that sort of thing. But some of these, yeah, some of these ships have only been seen, you know, on a single dive by a single dive pair um, just because of the vast volume. So there's so much more work to be done. Um, but generally what we try and do is we try and understand the spatial patterning of the ship. You know, how is the ship oriented with the island and then with the winds and then with the trade routes or the navigational routes that we know that they were taking. Um, and, and so we try and piece together what happened to that particular ship. And then as a whole, 
we study the whole assemblage of 58 to try and see if some broader trends can come out of that. And then with all of that archaeological data, we draw in historical sources and ethnographies with traditional Aegean mariners. And, uh, and so those two, the historical sources and the ethnography, are really piecing together this story of the navigational significance of the islands um, because they show that in every time period, you know, ships are passing by here. That, that there were certain routes that they had to take. And uh, one of the really interesting things that's come out of it is that it's really that this little tiny forgotten archipelago who nobody had heard of all of a sudden has this major naval significance to, um, to, to ancient navies who are putting towers and stationing troops on this little archipelago. And then also pirates. Pirates were coming to this archipelago in every period. So essentially from the... 5th century BC until the 19th century, we have these incredible accounts of pirates that are coming. And and the really interesting accounts are from the 17th century, where you have pirates from all over Europe and North Africa who start the so-called pirate season (laughs) in March by going to Forney, to this little tiny archipelago. And that's where they start their pirate season, and that's where they end their pirate season. And it's just because the volume of ship traffic passing by this archipelago at certain times of year, it was easy pickings for them. When we talk about pirates, like are we talking about pirates like I think of in the movies? Like they come, they sail up with their black flag and jump on your ship? Like is that really what happened? You know, piracy in Hollywood is very stylized, um, but it, it's it's a mix. So pirates in the Mediterranean were known as corsairs. Uh, there was a very different kind of social structure at work. Um, it's not exactly the same as kind of Caribbean piracy, the so-called golden age of piracy that was occurring, um, you know, with the Atlantic trade. Um, it's a bit different. Now, certainly there seems to be some pirates that are going to Forney that are similar to that traditional model. So there seem to be some international crews that include uh, French and English and, and a bunch of others that are piled into a big ship, um, similar to what we would see on the Atlantic pirate ships. And they were just going to places that were along trade routes. And they were trying to pick off ships, um, especially ships coming from Constantinople, Istanbul, um, traveling down to the Levant in Egypt. Um But what a lot of piracy in the Mediterranean and what we think the majority of the piracy at Forney was, was you would get a crew, a very small crew in a very fast boat, um, probably 10 or less. And you would get into what was essentially a very fast kind of canoe. And you would have one guy up on the top of a ridge waiting to see a sail. And as soon as he saw a sail, he would signal with a flag down to the crew down below and that crew would race out to the ship and because the the sailing ship is under sail with the sails set with you know at a certain angle to the wind they have less maneuverability than this very fast small boat that's rowing um so the rowing boat actually is, is in the dominant position here and it would come up it would board the ship they would be armed to their teeth and they would try and take over the ship and then take the most valuable things that they can um, you know, the, the, the things that are easily movable and then they would, uh, probably sink the ship, um, and, and kill everybody on board. Oh, yeah. I thought it was going to go. I didn't think it was going to go that way. I thought they would just take stuff and leave, but then it was kind of, oh, and then they had to kill everybody. I mean, it's, it's possible that, uh, <laughs> there were some nice ones that would let them go, but from the sources, it seems like, uh, a lot of the times they would just not leave any witnesses. Well, I guess if you're going to be a pirate, you got to go all the way in, right? That's right. That's right. And so, even in the 19th century, there, there's an account uh, from the 18 from 1810, I think it is, of an, an English. Um, I think he's a scientist traveling through this this strait by the archipelago, and he talks about how worried all the crew becomes as they're passing Forney, and how terrified they are passing by this archipelago, and they're all on the lookout for pirates. Um, and, and it talks about, you know, the fear that has developed uh, with the piracy in the area. And what's really interesting is um, one of our key project members, uh, who's a, a spear fisherman on the island, Manos Mitticus, his great-great-grandfather 
was the last person to ever be executed for piracy <laughs> in Greece. <laughs> and he lived on 40. So it might be his very great-great-grandfather who uh, this this English scientist was so worried about, you know, <laughs> passing through the, the archipelago. When you, when you look at some of these shipwrecks in these sunken cities, were people back then more advanced or less advanced than we would think? Certainly they were more advanced than, than we generally Consider. I mean, these were incredibly skilled, talented mariners who were part of an established, globalized trade network. They were speaking multiple languages. I mean, they were incredibly advanced. Um, it was for all of our advancements today. Um, you know, we don't give enough credit to people in the past and ships in particular. Um, this might be my bias as a maritime archaeologist coming out. But, um, you know, I, I had a professor who would say, you know, anyone can stack up stones on top of each other to make a pyramid. It's not that difficult if you have enough people. But building a ship that will float and cross an ocean and come back uh, is extremely difficult. And, and ships really are, in, in every time period, the pinnacle of technological achievement for their culture. Um, you know, a, a lot of money uh, – and innovation goes into shipbuilding in every time period. So when we look at ships, we really do see the pinnacle of what was available. What would kind of be the equivalent today of like the investment that went in, the technology that went into one of these ships? Uh, probably aircraft carriers uh, would be the most direct parallel in terms of, of watercraft of technology today. But then um, in terms of the, the social weight and importance of it, and the economic impact of it, um, it would have to be, you know, something like the tech industry, like the, like, um, you know, Silicon Valley, where there's people becoming billionaires uh, based on successful startups and that sort of thing. I mean, you have the same thing in the ancient world where, you know, you have people that are, are quite poor who go on to become incredibly wealthy. Um, you know, the, the richest person in Athens at one point was a freed slave uh, who was who was running kind of a trade empire. So you have incredible wealth being redistributed through maritime trade. Are you ready for some harder slash listener submitted questions? Let's do it. Is Atlantis real? This is a great question. Uh, and, and it's a common question, I think, for every maritime archaeologist. Um, don't want to crush anybody's hopes and dreams. So I'll start off by saying there are far more sunken cities than anybody realizes out there in the world. I mean, there are hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of sunken cities all over the world. Um, there's a lot of forces on our very dynamic planet that cause cities to sink into the sea. That said, Atlantis was told as a parable by Plato, and he very clearly conveys that it was fictional. It wasn't until the advent of penny dreadfuls in the late 19th century and early 20th century that it was retaken up. I mean, so everybody, so from Plato until the 19th century, everybody knew it was fictional. Then they started writing these kind of young adult stories um, in these kind of comic books and things saying that it was found and it was full of treasure and all this kind of stuff. And then that was taken um, in the mid 20th century and they, you know, turned into what if it is real? Why don't I go look for it? I found these strange rocks. Maybe this is Atlantis. No, those are just rocks. So, I mean, unfortunately, <laughs> Atlantis is not real. The size that, that Plato gives is it's larger than Europe and Africa combined. So, I mean, it, it's not feasible for this island to be realistic. Yeah. But when you, when you say like sunken city, are we talking like a city? Like, I live in Seattle. Like, Seattle-sized city? Or are we talking 10, 15 houses in a row? Like, how big of a city are we talking? So, it depends on, you know, it, so there's a couple different forces at work that submerge cities. And the two big ones are global sea level change, which is called eustatic sea level rise, and isostatic sea level rise, which is localized. So 18,000 years ago, you have these massive um, ice caps on, on the, you know, the earth is, is in the middle of an ice age. And all this water is held up in those ice caps. 
And 18,000 years ago, it's, the, it's what's called the end of the last glacial maxima, and those ice caps start to melt. And so sea levels rise about 100 meters oh. globally, everywhere. And so the first cities that were built, you know, 8,000 8, to 5,000 years ago, those that were built next to the coastlines became submerged by the sea level change. Now, by 8,000 years ago, um, to 5,000 years ago, you don't have large, large cities like we would recognize today. Like, you know, even like ancient Athens or ancient Rome, you just don't have cities that size in that period. But you do have, you know, considerable sized cities. So I used to work at Pablo Petri, which is the oldest known sunken city. There might be other ones out there, but it's the oldest known one. And I mean, it has paved streets with, you know, little like curbs in front of houses that have threshold doors and you can, you can kind of swim down the roadways. And it has, you know, big monumental building in the middle for gatherings and it has, you know, little feasting places where you can see people were drinking cups of, of some sort of, you know, wine or something outside together. And it has these big tombs that are cut into the rock and that sort of thing. So, I mean, it is recognizably a city with a significant amount of, of people living there. But, you know, in the hundreds, not in the thousands. Okay. But it is a city. Now, the one thing that always kind of disappoints people is that because of eustatic sea level change and then the local regional sea level change, isostatic, you know, the, Earth's, the Earth is incredibly dynamic, but the plates don't move that much. So the deepest known sunken cities are about six meters underwater. And it's really just the foundations. Most sunken cities are located in, in you know, two to three meters. Um, so, you know, like six to ten feet. Hmm. So not very deep at all. Um, and most of them continue onto land. Um, so they're only partially submerged. And uh, because of the age of these cities and storms and wave action and all the things that kind of break down human structures – it's usually the foundations and the roads and, and that sort of thing that remain. It's not like a full building that you'd be able to swim into and it has a roof and you'd be able to go upstairs and all that kind of stuff. So it, it, it's you know very much an archaeological site um, with foundations rather than like a, a full city. Coolest thing you've ever found? Mm, that is a good question. The discovery of Forney is probably the coolest thing in that our team – went out there expecting to find one or two shipwrecks like the other islands. And we just found this incredibly forgotten navigational point that is listed in ancient sources all over the place. And, and as we dig deeper, we find more and more information about how important this was. And it was just completely forgotten to history. But like on, on a small scale, on like an individual scale, I think – um, I was excavating in the Caribbean um, on a little island called uh, St. Eustatius, which um, is it's just, it's essentially two volcanoes, um, two extinct volcanoes on a little tiny island. And it was a Dutch colony and it was a free port. And so it used to be called the Golden Rock. So it was where all these ships uh, that were part of the Atlantic trade would stop in there to, to trade goods and that sort of thing. And lots of pirates were there and all that sort of thing. And we were excavating in a little building that turned out to be a counterfeiters. They were making counterfeit coins, um, counterfeiters things. And um, there was this thick, thick layer of sand. And above it, they had made a, just a new floor. They just said, there's so much sand in here, we're just going to make a new floor. And as, as we were digging down through the sand, we realized – that this was all the sediment that had come in from a tsunami. So a tsunami had struck the island in the 16th century and partially destroyed the city, filling it with all kinds of debris. And, um, and so when we dug down under the sand, I found in, in, three, in a perfect line three gold buttons that had been part of like a vest. And you could see that somebody had dropped their vest as the tsunami struck and it just it had been buried and just left it there. And it was just waiting to be discovered. And it was a very personal connection that this was something that had belonged to somebody and they had left it right here. We could actually see the event that had deposited it. What like if you find treasure, do you get to keep it? How does that work? <laughs> that's a good question. And that, that's also a, quite a common question. So everything we do is for scientific understanding. Uh, and so everything we find belongs to the state where we work. I mean, we are 
essentially, you know, working for the public. So our permits that we get from the government that allow us to work specifically outline that everything we find and we do is for the public benefit. So we're not allowed to sell or own artifacts because all of a sudden we would say, well, these artifacts don't matter. I'm just going to take those home with me. So, you know, it's the same with doctors and, and um, of course, like the ethical rules for lawyers and for everything else. You can't profit off of, you know, what you are responsible for. If you look at sustainable tourism, maritime museums and shipwrecks for diving tourists really lift, you know, the local economies of places. Those those are things that will get tourists to stay an extra two, three, four days. And so it really benefits the local community. And if you're really interested in preserving archaeology for future generations, which is supposed to be archaeology's goal, then you know, local museums and sustainable tourism really is necessary because that will get the local community really invested in the preservation and protection of sites. Are there are there groups, though, that go out specifically like looking for lost shipwrecks to find gold or things like that? There are. Um, they're becoming more and more rare uh, because it, it's it's illegal in, in nearly every country. And there's there's now international rules and and uh, treaties and and laws that protect you know anything over 100 years um so you know like with you know now world war one wrecks are now out of bounds so i mean there's very little actually available for people to find and to legitimately recover and sell on the market um i mean if you look at the history of treasure hunting which is really interesting um, you know, the, the early U.S. economy nearly collapsed in a panic due to speculation by treasure hunters. And the same thing has continued up until modern day, where there's a whole lot of treasure hunters who say they know where a wreck is, but they never actually leave home. They just drive up the stock price announcing, you know, I found a wreck worth a billion. I found a wreck worth three billion and all this kind of thing. They never have to go out. They just have to sell their stock when it reaches the high point and then disappear. And so this happens. It's super common. Um, so if you ever hear of a shipwreck announced that's worth a billion or three billion or anything like that, know that it's completely fictional and made up because there's just not enough carrying capacity in terms of weight in a wooden ship to transport that amount of gold or silver. It's just infeasible. Uh, and it'd be incredibly stupid for any captain um, you know, or government to put that much gold or silver silver into a single vessel. I mean, talk about putting all your eggs in one basket. So, you know, the most that's ever been found on a iron ship is 75 million in silver. And the most that's ever been found on a wooden ship is 50 million. So all these, I mean, you see it all the time. You see these, these announcements by treasure hunters. Oh, we found a ship worth a billion completely fictional it's just it's not feasible um so what they're really trying to do is they're trying to get investors and then they disappear and this is it's super common now you do some work with illicit antiquities trade though what what's happening kind of there yeah so i mean you have a lot of looting and trafficking of cultural heritage all over the world and that includes shipwreck sites so i mean there are treasure hunters so there's treasure hunters that work um, on the publicly traded markets, um, and these are the ones generally, um, you know, the treasures in the stockholders pocket. Uh, and then you have the illicit trade where people are illegally digging stuff up and selling it on the black market. And then you occasionally have dealers who try and, um, launder it onto the legal market. Um, so like with Islamic state, um, they were doing a lot of looting of archeological sites, selling them by black markets into Europe and America and, and elsewhere. Um, and then there were dealers laundering it onto the legal market and currently doing that, laundering it onto the legal market for sale as a legitimate artifact by, you know, uh, inventing uh, a history and that sort of thing. Uh, so just generally with the illicit antiquities trade, anything that was found after 1970, uh, which is the UNESCO Convention on the Protection of Cultural Heritage, um, cannot legally be bought or traded. So it has to be something older than 1970. So what we see a lot of is, you know, somebody will dig up an archaeological site in Iraq or Syria. Or, I mean, it, it happens in the United States as well. Um, there's a lot of looting in the, in the Southwest. They will create a fake paper trail saying that, oh, it was found in 1920 and then sold in 1940. And then, you know, 
I acquired it in 1969, right before 1970, and I'm selling it now. So there's this long paper trail. And then you look into, you know, when the paper was printed and, you know, it has a watermark saying, you know, printed in, you know, 2018. Yeah. So there's a lot of, a lot of, you know, illicit antiquities trade um, occurring around the world. The number of ships that get destroyed looking for gold is phenomenal. Uh, so somebody did a study showing that shipwreck discoveries peaked in the 1970s have been in decline since. And I can say every single ship that I've visited has some evidence of looting um, or things destroyed where somebody else came across it and then smashed it up looking for gold. I mean, there's, there's, you know, ships where people use dynamite to blow it up to see if the gold collects down in the bottom. Um, there was a ship when I was at East Carolina University, there was a ship discovered in one of the rivers uh, that was a really early um, paddle boat steamer. A phenomenal, important piece of, of you know, steam technology. And uh, some people thought, oh, it's a shipwreck. It must be a pirate ship. So they went and they destroyed the entire thing looking for gold. And of course, they didn't find any because it was a 19th century paddle boat. So, I mean, the destruction of ships... Uh, and archaeological sites in general is just incredible, and we are—we've—we've we've passed the tipping point of where there's there's less and less, and and there's no coming back from cultural resources. Once they're gone, they're gone forever. What, in your opinion, do people fail to take into account when considering ancient shipwrecks, both inside and outside of academic scholarship? Good question. Very good question. Um, I think they that everybody fails to account for how much we can really glean from each ship. I mean, there's so much within each thing, and the what's really become evident is how much we don't know right now, but they may be able to discover in the near future. So, I mean, I study amphora cargoes in ancient Mediterranean ships because they give us a glimpse of the international trade that was happening. Um, I would love to be able to spend more time on individual ships to get the amphoras off of the wooden remains to understand the ship construction and understand the innovations in shipbuilding that occurred over time. We could have all the maritime archaeologists focus on one ship and there would still be things that we haven't gleaned from it. But what's really become evident is that Technology and scientific analyses are progressing so rapidly that in 5, 10, 20 years, they're going to be able to do so much more than we can right now. So there are a bunch of ships that were excavated in the 60s and 70s and 80s where they found them and they brought up everything off the sea for everything, 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 and put them in museums. And they cleaned all of the amphoras and all the, the – so the amphoras are the jugs. I'm sorry. I should have said that earlier. But generally what we find in ancient Mediterranean ships are these these – ceramic jugs that would carry um, wine and olive oil and that sort of thing. So they cleaned all of the artifacts and they put them on display and then people came to see in the museum, which was great. But what's just become evident now is that DNA analysis is just progressing incredibly. And you can actually do DNA swabbing on the inside of, of amphoras and you can see, oh, they were you know, carrying wine, they were carrying fish sauce, they were carrying olive oil, this sort of thing. So it's providing an incredible insight into what was actually transported in these jugs. But all of those ships that were fully raised and cleaned, the DNA evidence is gone. That is the thing that I think is overlooked by a lot of people today is that we have to be aware while we're working today of what might happen tomorrow. What is the holy grail of underwater archaeology? Is there something that everybody is looking for? Oh, it really, it's going to depend on every specialty and region and that sort of thing. I mean, I know there are people that would love to, you know, understand, you know, the movement of humans across the Pacific or down into the Americas, you know, uh, 70 to to 16,000 years ago. Um, I mean, in the Mediterranean, for myself, what I would really love to find is an Athenian trireme. Uh, This is one of these things, you know, the ship that led to Athens' greatness, uh, the defeat of the Persians, and then um, the Delian League that really, you know, that, that made... Athens, a superpower for a century. Um, we know all about these triremes from ancient sources, but we've never found one. 
and they must be out there somewhere. Uh, warships are just incredibly difficult to locate because you don't have big piles of cargo that stand out on the seafloor. All the wood has been eaten away, and so you just have the metal fittings. Um, so they're out there somewhere. Someday somebody's going to find one, but we haven't found one yet. That's really all I've got. What's coming up next for you? Uh, well, COVID has unfortunately canceled a bunch of projects. Um, we were supposed to be in Tanzania. Uh, my colleague Nancy Rushashora is down there working right now on a, a harbor site on the coast of Tanzania. Tanzania has such incredibly rich archaeology and history, and especially maritime history. So there's a ton of potential down there. I mean, even the Greeks and Romans were sailing down there for trade. And uh, she's located at a site that's probably 17th to 19th century. Um, so as soon as I can get to Tanzania, I'm going to hop down there and help her out. There's uh, a project in Mongolia was kind of put aside due to COVID. So, I mean, lots and lots of projects going on, um, but everything's kind of put on hold due to COVID. I want to thank Peter so much for joining us. If you want to connect with him, we have a link to him on our social media accounts. We're profoundly pointless on Twitter and Instagram. And we have also included links to him on the RSS feed that's on this podcast. It really just is endlessly fascinating stuff. Because, yeah, history is interesting. And it's really cool to find out more about where we came from. But I also think that it can just tell us so much about where we are and where we're going at the same time. Okay, now let's go ahead and give John Shaw a call. Hello? Do you encourage people? Yes, I, I'm an, an encouraging individual, I would say. Really? Now why? Just by example or do you like actively give people encouragement? Uh, Both, you know, I'm... I'm a model citizen who I think people look up to and can respect. Okay, so that's obviously a lie. Um, but <laughs> of course, it's a lie. Come on. But do you actually like? Do you actively encourage somebody? Like, if someone does a good job and not a good enough job, where you actually s should say good job, but just like kind of a good job, are you going to encourage them? Are you going to say something? Yeah. So I'm, uh, I'm for sure that guy, so to speak. Like. You know, you, you did a great job. Like, you could have just done a, a decent job. But I'm like, hey, great job, you know. Get him next time or here's a high five. You know, you did really well, even though you may have not have done done that well at all. But, you know, keep your head up kind of thing. So, I, 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 I'm an encourager for sure. I don't think you're an encourager. I think you're a liar. <laughs> oh, man. Cause that's, oh, that's, that's brutal. Well, um, that sounds like you're a liar, right? Because you just said, like, oh, hey, good job, even though you didn't really do a good one. So you're really just lying to them. You're actually discouraging them if you think about it. I mean, if you were, if you were really to break it down, I understand what you're saying. But I don't think people, first off, think that in-depthly about, about it. And I don't think people actually – I mean, you're right, but I don't think that's the way that people perceive – those kind of actions. I would say, though, that even if somebody's patronizing me and they said, hey, good job on that one, mm -hmm. it probably does make me feel a little bit better. Even if I know they're slightly lying to me, like even if I know I did a shitty job, I'd still be like, eh, well, the boss thought it was good. Everyone likes to be patronized, right? I mean, even if you do, like, hell, I, I, I installed um, a ceiling fan over the weekend and though it's not that big of a deal, like, I wanted my wife to be like, hey, great job. And even though she just, like, kind of walked by and didn't say much, I was, like, kind of upset by it. Does it work? I mean, the electrical <laughs> wiring isn't necessarily easy. I don't feel like you should be doing that, honestly. Uh, I mean, I've done them before. It, and I'm not saying this to sound like I know what I'm doing because I don't. But they're not actually that hard. When you when you do one, all of them kind of, I mean, they're, they're the same process. But the my my thought on it was, you know, and this gets back to the encouragement thing, is like if my wife would have walked in and been like, wow, that's that's the best ceiling fan you've put up. Like, great job. Like, then it, I would have been like, okay, I'm like Bob Vila now. I'm going to go take down a wall. But now it's just like, oh, okay, well, you just, you know, you just kind of walked by and scoffed, so. Well, I think that's probably her general strategy, is that more than likely this job is adequate at best. <laughs> probably not well done. She realizes that this is immediately not well done, and any kind of encouragement would only encourage you to continue to do other projects shittily. 
<laughs> I mean, I, I don't but see. I once again, it's kind of what you were saying. Instead of her lying to me, which I first off, I think it's a good job. But instead of her, you know, encouraging me and lying to me, she kind of was just like, well, I'm not going to hurt your feelings. So I'm just going to not really say anything. I'm just going to go ahead and go out on a limb here and say that if any sort of code inspector or licensed construction person came and inspected any of this work, there's a 100% chance it would not be up to code. No, no, it is, actually, because... That's a lie. There's there's already a box in the ceiling. I, we don't... No one cares about this. I'm just saying, it's, I guarantee it's not up to code. Where they need to be, it's fine. I 100% say, 100% it is not. Listen, did you, did you have a good Halloween? What were you for Halloween? Myself. Oh, oh wow, you got... You got out of the, well, what were you? you know, what were you? I we me and the family were one fish, two fish, red fish, blue fish, or whatever. And I was the wife and I were the two green fishes. The kids were the red and blue fishes. Wow, you're at that stage of life, huh? <laughs> yes, and yeah, I, I got nothing. You know, it, it was what it was. Okay, well, it, I haven't completely given up on all my hopes and dreams yet, so I didn't do that. <laughs> well, I think if people who have listened to this podcast probably automatically think from what we've talked about that you probably still have a glimmer of hope of in your life. Mine's mine's pretty much over for many reasons. I mean, I, it's definitely like there's a glimmer, but if the door, like imagine that the glimmer is coming through a door, the door is 99% shut, right? <laughs> like it's 90, I mean, but it's not 100%. I've still got that 1% chance that I still might be able to, you know, someday live out one of my dreams, but it's probably not going to happen. This is probably the rest of my life, right? <laughs> the only thing that hasn't happened yet is the complete acceptance that my life is done. Here, here, moving away from your sad life and not even touching on mine, here's an interesting uh, question for you. Oh, is it? How do you feel about people and and... The COVID, obviously, you know, Halloween was different, but a couple of the houses had bowls of candy and it said, take, you know, take some, right? But there were full candy bars in the bowl and half candy bars. Who the fuck would do that? That's a total mind fuck. Maybe somebody didn't want all that candy. Not everybody is a complete glutton and has to eat until they throw up. <laughs> I think anyone would take the full candy bar. Now, there's not one person who's like, oh, full candy bar or half candy bar. Well, I'm going to take the half candy bar. I would take the half candy bar because I'm not a jerk, and I would think, you know what? These are for other little kids. Maybe another little kid would like to have a full candy bar. Why am I going <laughs> to take this? I'm a grown adult. I've had a full candy bar before. I'm not the guy that's got to load up on the whole bowl because he wants 17 different kinds of Reese's. Well, I, I'm definitely the full candy bar getter, and I'll just say that and leave it at that. Because apparently, I'm in the. I don't think I'm in the minority in that. I, I think you are. But okay, all right, you ready for your thing? Let's 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 hear it. But let's do it, man. Let's get some shout outs on this uh, th this lovely election week that probably won't be over, but we won't get into it. Uh, all right, starting off with Zany G. Appreciate you, Martin, Dave, one of our uh, faithful listeners, Dave Lukowski, uh, Shelby Cooper. John, Adam Peters, Billy Jones, Claudia Lopez, Ooh. Amber, and Cameron Stewart. All of you get the uh, gold stars for the week. Cameron Appreciate Stewart, a man or a woman? Uh, what was that? Cameron Stewart, man or woman? Uh, a man. Hmm. Well, okay. according to his Instagram profile picture, it's it's a man. I assume it, it's he's a man, but you never know. Okay. All right. Uh <laughs> So kind of a fun one here for you. Uh, the worst uh, election campaign theme song of all time. Who would you give it to? I have no idea. What kind of you question know the is songs. that? No, I don't. You I, know I, the have, songs. I, I honestly, even working in news for a decade, which I worked in covering elections, I couldn't tell you a single campaign song from a single candidate. I have no well, idea. I have four options for you to pick from. Okay, they're all probably all bad. They're fantastic. I just want to say them. You don't have to answer. I, oh, I don't really God. care. I found it entertaining. All right. All right. Uh, Ronald Reagan, born in the USA. Trump, God bless the USA, which Lee Greenwood, that's just a, it's way overplayed. Um, Bob Dole, I'm a Dole man. I actually was there when Bob Dole fell off a uh, scaffolding. 
So I'm going to automatically just go with Bob Dole because I watched him fall off scaffolding. <laughs> and then non-American president, uh, but Saddam Hussein's 2002 election campaign song was I Will Always Love You by Whitney Houston. Man, well, I mean, just out of sheer irony, they probably, I don't want to say this necessarily, but good for Saddam, I guess. <laughs> At I least mean, he made a different choice, fun. right? Like he made but. a he, he he did some terrible things, but he uh, the man knew his music. <laughs> Anyways, I I thought it was fun. I I didn't realize that you're a terrible person. It's all over the place, right? Because it, it is what it is. But there was a song on there, and I was like, I wonder what other campaigns have used for their songs. So then I went down a rabbit hole, and. An hour later, that's the top four that I came up with. So. Okay. So for anyone of uh, John's family who's wondering why he hasn't called them back, now you know. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, no one no one calls me anyways, but it doesn't matter. Um, who would play you in a, in a movie? Like, who would you pick to be an actor to play you? I don't even have an answer for these kind of questions. Uh, Rick Moranis. <laughs> yes. Actually, I think Rick that w- actually, actually, I think Rick Moranis would be probably the guy who would play me. First off, the you made the last one about the presidential, you know, campaign theme songs like way more involved than it should have been. You should have just let me talk and then just answered. Instead, you wanted to like give me shit, and it is what it is. Um, did you answer? You answered. All right, and then the last Which one. Which one? Who's uh, playing you? Um, probably uh, Jonah Hill. I could see that. Or the guy who plays Samuel Tarley in Game of Thrones. Oh, my God. Oh, I was really hoping to get away from that. That bad. Well, I mean, he's a mega millionaire, right? What do I care? I sure. don't think so. I think he, uh, look, he's not He's not set for life, I don't think. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, he had to have make, uh, made a, a decent amount of money. Probably not set for life money, though. You're right. I don't think that some of those kind of secondary characters necessarily really make very much money. I really don't think that they do. I wouldn't be surprised if that dude. I wouldn't be surprised if that dude made less than a hundred thousand dollars for each season. Damn. Which I mean, in retrospect, it's a lot of money to to us and probably to most. But on the grand scheme of things, it really isn't. I mean, not really. Like, imagine he got seventy five grand for a season. That's not. I mean, that's good, right? But that's not crazy kind of money. And I mean, not when Jon Snow, I mean, well, whatever, it doesn't matter, their character. But yeah, it's not a lot of money at all, really. No, especially not for his, you would think, okay, it's not a lot of money for his level of fame. Hmm, but then again, I think someone would argue, what is his level? Like, I don't even know his his, his real name. Like, I don't, you know. John Bradley. <laughs> I Okay, well, I could go into other questions, but I, I don't think, you know. Speaking of completely changing the topic because you made me think of it, can we have a quick moment of hundred thousand an episode? Hundred thousand an episode. Actually, that's pretty damn. No wait, no. Ten thousand an episode. That's how much he made. Ten thousand an episode. All right, I'm back. I was having a moment of silence for Sean Connery. Ten thousand an episode. That's all Sam well made. He's probably not. And if you think about it, he's probably not actually in that many episodes. He didn't make. So I mean, that's not. Yeah, that's not really like crazy money. Like, imagine there's eight episodes in a season. He might only be in like one or two of them. Well, I mean, if you know, if uh, John Bradley, if you're listening to this podcast and you want to make some, uh, you know, some get some bumper stickers, let us know. You can come on that way. Okay, I don't know what that means. <laughs> but... it means that he he. That, I mean, that's nothing money, right? In terms of Hollywood, that's like. What does that have to do with bumper stickers? I'm kind of shocked to hear that number, to be honest with you. What does that have to do with bumper stickers, though? Well, I I mean, we don't make any money, so I was trying to think on the fly of something that we could give him that he would care about. I feel like he's, you know, he he seems like he's a bumper sticker kind of guy. Okay. (laughs) Man, that makes no sense. (laughs) Uh, Like, Like, if you did one of those kind of crazy red line on the map kind of conspiracy theory dioramas that they sell sometimes like at no point does that even connect anywhere like not anywhere fucking close whatsoever well and you know for those who are just listening that's the only reason you keep me around is because i'm literally pointless 
And most of the things I say are profoundly pointless. That's, bazinga! Nice, nice. You ruined it with the bazinga. Uh, it would have been really good. I was feeling good about you, and then you did that, and now uh, I'm kind of angry about it, honestly. <laughs> let's just uh, let's move on. All right, last one here. Uh, on a scale from 1 to 10, 10 being the most angriest you can get, most angry you can get. I never understand this anymore. Why do we have to clarify that 1 is low and 10 is high? When has 1 ever been high? 10 is always I mean, the highest. We as a society need to stop doing that. Ten is the I mean, highest, one the is the lowest. Where we, where one That's is a the countdown. Highest. That's a countdown, though. That's different. You're counting down. I, I mean, I have nothing. I mean, you make sense. I just, I don't know. Just, I was just trying to clarify. I know, but we shouldn't have to clarify anymore. It should just be understood. I don't have to clarify that two and two is four. <laughs> Why are you yelling? that today okay let's go <laughs> no i was uh, uh <laughs> well now, now you're making me feel all self-conscious uh so from one to ten how mad are you when you're you get done taking a shit and you go to you know grab the toilet paper and someone didn't replace the roll i'm not mad at all because i have to keep my house organized and that doesn't happen to me because i'm a grown adult <laughs> also well, it's you're really better than most of us i would say probably like a two it's really not that hard to just do the weird pants down. What are you doing? Mowing your lawn? No. no nothing's happening over here. Why are you freaking out? I can out? clearly hear something. You're doing something. What are you doing? Why Why are you freaking out? Just tell me what you're doing. Stop lying to me. My my dog My dog was like looking like he had to pee, so I let him out. Okay, so is this sliding? You were sliding the door back and forth? Yes, it was a sliding door. Okay, all right. Is it glass or screen? <laughs> glass. You keep it locked? No, no, at night, not during the day. Okay, it's legit. Back door or side door? Back door. <laughs> yeah, I bet you don't <laughs> keep that locked. Anyways, getting back to your thing, <laughs> Two. I, would be a t I would be a 10, all right? Yeah. I am a 10, and it pisses me off every time. Well, then do something about it and stop expecting the whole world to cater around you. You have the you're a grown adult. You can perfectly look, "Oh, I've got to go to the bathroom. Maybe I should see if there's toilet paper before I go ahead and sit down." So your failure to plan is not someone else's problem. <laughs> I mean, I guess so. Fair enough, I suppose. Okay, are you ready for our top uh, top 5? Let's do it. Okay, so our top 5 is top 5 things you should do, but you just don't. What's your number five? Uh, so my list is pretty boring. Uh, I have save save money as number five. I feel like that should be higher on a list. Like if you're gonna put it on a list, that should be higher. You could be right on that, but uh, I guess we'll just have to see where my where my list takes us down the road of perdition. Okay, my number five is car maintenance. I don't do any kind of car maintenance, or really maintenance in general of everything. I basically just wait for it to break down. Okay, I mean, I I actually try to do some pre-maintenance, but I usually fail. So I I think most can understand with you where you're coming from on this one. I, what do you mean you fail? Like you take it to, you don't make it all the way to the dealership? No, I mean, like, uh, you know, I, I change, uh, try to change the oil, uh, you know, I, I check the, the 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 levels, things like that. But you know, like I could change the oil, and then which has happened to me, and then the next day, like something will happen to the car, and I have to take it in anyways for it to get you know completely fixed. So I was like, why did I just spend all that time and effort doing the basics when I could have just lumped them into you know having someone else do it? If anyone on this is listening to this podcast for the first time and doesn't know what John looks like, picture a person changing oil who then gets the oil all over his face <laughs> oh and, like, starts coughing it up, and now you know exactly what John looks like. <laughs> Whatever. Uh, Is that true number... or not? Do you or do you not look like the guy who goes to change their oil and gets it all over himself? I mean... <laughs> yes, yeah, so, I mean, I am. I mean, there's no hiding it. <laughs> you really do uh, but that's good All for right. you man I don't even know how to do it I couldn't do it if I needed to <laughs> don't 
don't don't act like you know don't patronize me now um no i don't so, but i do know how to take it down the street and pay 19 dollars to get it done <laughs> my number four is uh replacing the toilet paper actually wow so really you're mad at yourself <laughs> well I, I i am i am a suspect yes but also other people in my house aka my wife are the same you know share the same uh, amount of of fault on this no i don't agree with that at all i can tell you i don't know anything about your wife or your daughter's eating or uh bathroom <laughs> habits i can go ahead and say with 100 percent certainty that you use 92 percent of the toilet paper in your household if you were to say 90 i would probably agree with you okay that's fair that's fair i thought it might i, I maybe i overestimated a little bit uh, my number four is making a will. Didn't even think about that, and I, I mean, it makes sense, but I, I, I probably put it on honorable mention if anything. But it, it's not bad. Every time I get on a plane, I think, man, I really should make a will. No, you want you're one of those people then. Oh, the person who worries about falling out of the sky at 500 miles per hour and dying and leaving my family. Do yeah, you know, I'm I, one of those. I don't know the statistics, but I mean, what what are the percentage of plane crashes a year? Like point zero zero one percent. I don't know. I know it's safer than driving. They always say. You're probably the guy that gets on a boat and like, you know, puts on his life preserver and his little little floaties on his arms and puts a sunscreen on his nose. I do put sunscreen on. I mean, this it's. I don't understand how someone can be making fun of someone else for putting on sunscreen. You're literally, like, it's the fucking sun, right? No one is more powerful than the sun. Oh, you're going to put on sunscreen? You're so weak. Yeah, there's a giant ball of gas out there that's going to burn my face off if I don't. Like, oh, I'm weaker than the sun. What an insult. Uh, you know, you can take it however you want it. You're, you're just kind of angry today. I'm just pointing out facts here, man. I'm just pointing out facts. I don't worry about a boat, actually. I can get on a boat and not worry about, like, I'm going to sink. But I used to be a lifeguard. Shout out to the Derby Recreation Center, 16 through 17, baby. God help God help anyone that you, you know, looked over as a lifeguard, because I think you'd be damn terrible. I can honestly make a claim I legitimately saved three children's lives. No, you didn't. I did. They were, like, legit drowning in the pool. I had to go in and get them. I mean, I didn't do a good job of it. They were probably in there for a little bit longer than they should have been. Possibly had some brain damage, but still, I did go get them. <laughs> so what you're saying is you were probably too busy noticing other things around you, and then somebody was like, hey, lifeguard, that kid's drowning, and then you jumped into action. No, I mean, they didn't say it, but I, I don't think that I was probably the first one on the uptick. I'll say that. <laughs> What's your what's your number three? Uh, so I have uh, exercise as my number three. Okay, that's pretty legit, right? I think that's that's definitely. I think a lot of people would have that. It's definitely towards the top of the list. I would agree with it. Okay. Um, I will have calling family members. Yeah, I mean that that's that's a that's a good one. I don't know if it's top three, but it's it's should be probably somewhere in the top ten. Not right. top three though. Okay. What's your number two? Uh, sleep regularly. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I feel like the top of this list is going to be pretty basic, right? Like, sleep more is my number one. My number two is not procrastinating. Okay. Uh, my number one is eating well. Yeah. So. Okay. That makes so, sense. Uh, so, we were, I'm surprised that you didn't have eat, you know, eating well at all on your list, to be honest. I'm, I'm okay with the way that I eat. Right? I'm all right with it. I'm I'm at peace with my nutritional habits. All right. Well, I mean, if you're if you're if you're happy then then you can be happy. Okay. What's in your honorable mention? Uh nothing great. Spend spending less time on social media. Uh there's a problem in my house with filling up our Brita filter with water after you empty it. Wow, which, that's boring. <laughs> uh I have Never cleaning and dusting regularly. Yeah, pretty much it on my list. Uh, let's see. I got drinking water. I should probably drink more water. I don't need to put it in a Brita filter like I'm some kind. Of, well, you do live in Detroit, so you probably <laughs> should. Never mind. 
Uh, take that one back. You probably need to worry that about your Flint, water quality. By the way, which I'm not trying to make light of the situation, but that was not Detroit. That was Flint. Oh, okay. Detroit's much nicer. <laughs> Everybody knows that their water quality is like drinking from the springs of the Antarctic North Pole or wherever the Antarctic is. I think it's actually the South Pole. But anyway, uh, go to the doctor. Should probably go to the doctor. In general, just. Uh, somebody submitted back up your computer files. I mean, I can always find more porn on the internet, so I don't feel like I really need to do that. <laughs> yeah, why? Well, I, I wouldn't suggest backing anything up from the internet. Have you ever actually downloaded porn? Like, actually downloaded it onto your computer? Uh, no, because I want my computer to last a while. Okay. No, I've never downloaded it. Like, you could always just go back to the internet. Pretty easy to find more. <laughs> I never understood the point of downloading it necessarily. But whatever, man. If that's your thing, you got like a whole floppy disk of it or whatever. <laughs> just like, huh, okay. Interesting choice of word there. Yeah. Yeah. I'm pretty happy with that. Um, also, just in general, planning for the future. Yeah, I, I'm definitely not a planner for the future no (laughs) (laughs) as soon as i started to say that i was like oh shit no i just i just backed right into his fucking one-liner no you did a good job thanks appreciate that (laughs) thank you for the encouragement i appreciate it you're doing a great job too yeah great job all around buddy Okay, that's going to go ahead and do it for this episode of Profoundly Pointless. I want to thank you guys so much for joining us. If you get a chance, like, download, subscribe, share. We really appreciate it. It really helps us out. Would love to know what are some things that you guys, you you just know you should do this. You even make a plan to do it, and then you just don't do it. I mean, for me, it just comes down to laziness. But let us know what, what are some of those things for you.